we invite you to this episode of Good Theology, a digital ministry to grow God's kingdom of faith, hope, and love here on earth. We cannot wait for someone else to do later what God has already called us to do here and now. To learn more, please visit us online at goodtheology.life. Grace and peace to you, friends of Good Theology. This episode, we're actually just going to go ahead and jump right into it. And so this scripture actually will be coming from Mark chapter 13. But as always, let's go ahead and center ourselves and our intentions. Our ears to hear you, our eyes to see you, our behavior to share you. Glory be to you, God, source of all being, incarnate word and Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So this scripture comes to us from Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. As he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings? Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all of these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. For the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Here ends the reading. So as we approach this text in Mark, uh, and we try and peel back this glimmer of wisdom that Christ shares with us, uh, it's actually good to kind of dial it back a little bit and try to remember where we are in this ministry of Jesus, right? And so uh, we've started in chapter 13. So chapter 11 and chapter 12, uh, Jesus and his disciples have entered Jerusalem. They've gone into the temple. um, And and by temple, I mean the temple, the spiritual, ritualistic, and cultural epicenter for the Judean people, right? And it's in these chapters of 11 and 12 that Jesus calls the Pharisees and the temple um, a den of robbers, where Jesus decries their corruption, where he comments on the contrast between this impoverished woman that we see who gave her last two denarii into the treasury, uh, as opposed to her rich countrymen who have given lots, but, you know, it's super easy for them. And and Jesus is teaching that the woman's faith, this poor woman's faith, was more than any of these rich people, because faith is more about what we give out of hope and life uh, than out of ease and notoriety, right? And so then here we have in chapter 11 and 12 that the priests and the scribes also admit that they admit to Jesus that to love God and to love neighbor are indeed the most important commandments in relation to everything else that the Torah and the Bible and the laws that they teach us. So there's a lot of really important stuff about faith and life that we get from Jesus as he's in the temple in Jerusalem in chapters 11 and 12. And so we arrive here 
in chapter 13 at the very beginning after this temple um after the the chapters 11 and 12 of being in the temple and so he's come into jerusalem he's done his stuff in the temple but it's not quite the last supper so there's this in between time between uh his time in the temple and the last supper with his disciples and so we pick up where they're headed out of the temple compound and as they're headed out of this massive structure this visual icon of the landscape one of his disciples remarks about just how impressive the stones and the buildings are and what's what's interesting about the authorship and the time period that this is written down as opposed to when Jesus was talking is that it's roughly the same period that the temple was actually destroyed by the Romans. Uh, we think Mark's gospel was written uh, anywhere between 65, 66, and 74 AD. The temple's destroyed in 70 AD. So there's this huge overlap uh, about either the temple was about to be destroyed or it actually was just destroyed. So as, uh, and it was destroyed by the Romans to punish the Jewish people. So as a first or century Jew to hear Mark's gospel, um, and hear about how impressive the temple was, they would have known it. They would have known how impressive it was. And, and the destruction of it actually would be very, very real in their mind space because it would have just happened. Um, and so I hope you can understand the immediate double emotional impact this story has for first century Jews and actually for us to... To make it seem a little bit more close to home, uh, what would this scripture mean to us, for example, right? If instead Jesus was talking with his disciples as they headed away from the World Trade Center complex and one told Jesus how impressive the Twin Towers were and he were to tell them that soon no tower would be left standing. It's a... It's a very uh, ghostly thing to imagine. And I don't bring that example up lightly, but I do want us to consider just how traumatizing uh, what Jesus was saying could seem like. Did Jesus know that the Romans were going to destroy the temple? Did he mean it literally or did he mean it figuratively? Um, did he mean... Because he could have, right... <sighs> Some people can, you can, you can look at what he says about destroying the temple and look at it as he intended it as a figurative statement, that, that what he was dying on the cross for would change the landscape of faith and life itself. But also, I mean, for these people who have just experienced this traumatizing event, it feels very real to them as a, as a literal thing what does it what does it mean to know that a pillar of culture an icon of what humans can achieve by sheer intellect uh, that it won't just be tested or damaged but that it's completely destroyed what does it mean to say that that what you know as impenetrable or immovable or indestructible is shattered beyond repair if there's anything that the last 20 years since 9-11 has taught American culture, 
It's that violence and change have so easily gone hand in hand. Whether it's terrorism, school shootings, police brutality, and even political upset, over and over again, we experience this shattering of what we feel to be safe. And it even goes beyond physical violence. I mean, haven't we experienced the shattering of our financial institutions with the great collapse of 2008? Now the shattering of the safety that occurred by the 2019 COVID outbreak. We are constantly experiencing this violence and shattering. And what comfort did Jesus give his disciples when they asked him to expand upon his words and meanings to tell them, you know, when they could expect such peril or how to prepare or mitigate it? What does Jesus say to them? He says that a time will come when nations will fight nations and kingdoms will fight kingdoms. Earthquake and sickness will overwhelm us. And that all of this is merely the beginnings of what our human family will endure. Birth pangs, he calls it. I mean, it's like if Jesus were an advice column, like an adverse, uh, like a columnist giving advice, like I could just picture it now, right? Dear Jesus, you just said life is going to get really difficult. When is that going to happen? Signed, follower, just trying to get by. Dear just trying, thanks for the question. Not going to tell you the answer. And also, anyone who tries to speak for me is a ready liar and a fake. Also, when it starts getting really bad, Chin up. Just keep calm and carry on. This is only the beginning. Yours always, Jesus. First, can we just say that uh, him saying people will try to speak for me, me on a podcast or anyone on a podcast or anyone giving a sermon ever is this like poetic, like hilarious kind of nod to that moment. And so um, I realized the irony of me having a sermon or, or this sermon at all in the midst of Christ saying that. But I mean, he says that because he wants us to be really discerning about what we hear from other people. And there are a lot of bad messages out there who try to speak for Jesus uh, and ways that you know that it's Jesus versus not Jesus. One is something that I've said before. It's consistent, consistent. God does not change the way God feels. So if it doesn't say love God and love neighbor, it's not God, right? Um, so to all of those people who claim to be speaking for God and don't say those two things, that's bad theology. That's not, that's not good. Then that's not God. But back to the other aspect, right? This keep calm and carry on. So we've just had Jesus, you know, turn over tables and call people den of vipers and like really do some big stuff to kind of put his foot, not in his mouth, but in everybody else's. And for him to then turn around and say, but I want you guys to keep calm and carry on. Uh, it, it kind of feels on surface, it feels more like a do as I say, not as I do situation, right? Except it's not quite that either. Um, firstly, we shouldn't ever try and think that we are equal to God. Uh, we don't want to ever do that presumption. So there are going to be plenty of times that Jesus is going to say and do things that we can't say and do. Judging others. Uh, judge not, yes, ye be judged, right? 
We don't have the authority to judge other people. We do it all the time, but we don't have the authority for it. Um, God is the authority for it. So, so there's that piece. Um, but the other aspect, right, is to presume that keeping calm and carrying on means keeping the status quo and keeping our noses clean to not abandon hope or to not become frightened or to not worry that those things mean the same thing as do nothing because they don't. Now, so for those of you who may not know, the keep calm and carry on slogan was actually invented by the British government in 1939, uh, just as World War II was up and rearing and is actually a 20th century version of a British Victorian stoicism. That's an expression uh, of stoic, um, of strength. Uh, Basically, it was stiff upper lip. That was the original Victorian saying, you know, a stiff upper lip, which really means fortitude in the face of adversity. Now, fortitude in the face of adversity, stiff upper lip, keeping calm and carry on. Don't never confuse resilience with submission or acquiescence. I want to say that again. Never confuse resilience with submission or acquiescence. How do we look at Christ's wisdom of these verses and find comfort? I offer that perhaps maybe we can't. Not all of Jesus's words are meant to make us feel good. They are meant to make us better people, but they aren't necessarily meant to make us feel good. Mark's telling of this moment in Jesus's life is a difficult parallel for us to consider here and now. The destruction of the temple in 70 CE, four decades after Christ's crucifixion, it was a, a, a hallowed echo of his words that the temple did indeed crumble. Except it wasn't Jesus's followers or even Jesus who revolutionized the faith and the ritual and that it was some kind of um, figurative crumbling. It was the Roman Empire that wanted to squash Jewish national identity and destroyed the temple. And 400 years later, 400 years after the temple was destroyed, the Visigoths sacked Rome itself. An icon of power and wealth and culture for over 800 years of iron strength collapsed, was sacked and destroyed. Now that's not when Rome, that's not when the Roman Empire officially, you know, collapsed, but it is the moment that Romans saw their perfect temple of Rome, their iconic city, and saw it made weak and humbled. It had to have felt similar to them as what the Jews felt when the temple was destroyed. And I'm not, I'm not saying that the Romans got what they deserved for destroying the temple. I'm not, don't make that, that case. I'm not saying that because they destroyed the temple, that's why their city was destroyed. I am saying, however, that no institution is immortal or unconquerable. And yet should not, we should not be so distracted as to keep our focus there. Do not be alarmed, Christ says. Right? He never said stop doing what he told us to do. He never says to run away and back down, to hunker in and, and keep out all visitors. And he never said quit or become an isolation. What he said 
was do not be alarmed. How do you handle something that seems insurmountable or deal with calamity? Now, that question may feel like it's coming out of left field, so to speak. But in our everyday lives, we all have our great temple, our city of Rome. We all have what we are afraid of losing, what we hope to be impenetrable. And so how do we know to keep calm and carry on? Or do we panic? If someone told Minerva McGonagall that Hogwarts would be destroyed, she wouldn't have believed you. Hogwarts was more than a school or an institution. It was an iconic and important thing greater than words to everyone, witches and Death Eaters alike. It was centuries old and protected by ancient magic. And yet, and yet, as the Death Eaters stormed the gates and the battle raged, the castle was torn down. And even though Professor Dumbledore was already gone, how did Professor McGonagall react? How did she react when her general, her principal, the headmaster, when he was already gone, how did she cope with such destruction? She never lost her resolve. She never wavered. She kept calm and carried on. She defended the students, the school, and opposed what she knew was wrong. And she obeyed Dumbledore's wishes. Even after he was gone, when he told her to help Harry, she still did. She didn't question that. She trusted him because she trusted Harry because that's what Dumbledore told her to do. I love going into the Harry Potter verse, you know, universe, because I think there are so many moments there that teach us actually about Jesus's morals. But there are also moments in real life, too. Uh, Warren Buffett is a name that I hope is familiar to you. When he was applying to college, to, to business school, he was actually rejected from Harvard. Uh, and he ended up deciding to go to Columbia. And he went to Columbia because his economics, this economics philosopher, who he's greatly admired, taught there. Now, Warren Buffett is the 10th richest man in the world. And no matter what bio you read about him or, or paper is written about him, they always say this one thing, at least, that he sticks to this economic philosophy that his mentor pioneered. And it's called value investing. And I'm not trying to sell you on value investing. I'm not sure I completely understand exactly what it is, right? But, but what I will say is that for Warren Buffett, the words of his mentor and this value investing, he's kept to it amidst 80 years of ups and downs of, of business. World wars, political changes, and COVID, and Buffett has stuck to what he knows is true and important. Jesus's point with us knowing about this time in his life and what he said to his disciples through Mark. Do not lose your resolve. If God has tasked you to do something to further his kingdom of hope and love here on earth, and trust me, he has. All of us 
are recruited and desired into this kingdom and army of creating missional work of this hope and love and faith around the world. So if you haven't felt it yet, I encourage you, strongly encourage you to try and, and, and connect with God on what it might be. But no matter what, no matter what, do not waver. Do not back down. Do not let culture or friends or neighbors convince you that we're not on the front lines with the army of evil at our door. The temptation to only care for our own, to only do what is necessary to succeed, it's too seductive and it's too attractive. And just because something is comfortable or uncomfortable doesn't mean it's good or bad. Comfort and good aren't always the same thing. Kingdoms will fight kingdoms, Jesus said, but do not be alarmed. We have to keep calm and carry on as God has called us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Good Theology. To learn more, please find us online at goodtheology.life.